Oh, okay. <laughs> You're listening, listening to Hold That Thought from Arts and Sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. Thanks for listening to Hold That Thought. I'm Claire Navarro. And I'm Rebecca King. And we have a very special episode today. Uh, we get to talk to some very special guests whose voices you might even recognize. Do you Would mind? You? Oh, sure. No, that's been <laughs> totally silent. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, yeah. Uh, hello, I'm Jad Abumrad, host of Radio Lab. And I'm Robert Krolich, co host. Yeah, so um, it's, we're honored to have you guys with us today. Thank you so much. Yeah, we're psyched to be here. So since we are on a college campus, uh, Washington University in St. Louis, we thought we'd get started by trying to bring you back to college life. Um, if I read correctly, you studied music composition and yes. creative writing as yes. an undergrad. You studied history and then went on to study law. Mm -hmm. What were you like as college students, and how did your undergraduate studies affect how you approach topics on Radiolab? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. We're probably not good experts in what we were like now. No. Like, like, you'd, have to, you'd have to ask people around us, but I guess, I don't know. It's funny. I mean, actually, music composition, that's what I studied. It's kind of what I still do. History, you're, I feel like that's always coming up in our <laughs> Maybe we were a little bit like ourselves now, but less awesome, less smart. I don't know. I mean, I, I uh, it's interesting. I mean, we always talk together about how Oberlin, where we went, sort of formed us in a very, in a way that still feels present in our lives. So, I don't know. We weren't probably weren't too different. So, Radio Lab is described as a show about curiosity, and this week we're kind of celebrating curiosity um, and the liberal arts and all that that kind of encompasses. So, in today's world, you know, what is the value of curiosity? Why, why be curious? That's like saying it's like, why do you have a nose? I, I, <laughs> no, it make, just feels I can't. Don't you want to be like? Like, wouldn't? What if you woke up every day? completely satisfied that everything that was about that, that happened around you was totally natural and nothing ever surprised what curiosity begins with is surprise and i th i think it's i think it's it's so basic to living well yeah i mean surprised. living well is a good way to think of it i mean i don't know if you look back at the last however many years i mean we're constantly being bombarded not just with things we don't know but with this sort of more existential f uh, reality that, that there's so much we don't even know we don't know, uh, which can be very paralyzing and it can be very uh, scary. But the positive approach is to just be curious about it and to kind of, in a, with an open heart and open mind, walk into those sort of blank spots and ask questions, which you know are going to be dumb questions and, and you're okay with the Snickers you'll get when you ask the dumb questions, but ultimately they'll lead to slightly smarter questions. And then there you go. You move into those places and you illuminate them for yourself. Uh, I feel like that's the way to, to live well and also acknowledge this, the, the, the amount that we'll never know. You know, that feels to me like to be curious is to somehow be at ease with the, with the mysteries, but also not, not at rest with those mysteries, mm, yeah. you know? And, and maybe that it's better to not know than, I mean, this is weird, but when we meet people, which we do, who are looking for the theory of everything and who believe that everything is discoverable and who wonder whether science is over at different points in history because everything has been figured out, 
instead of that feeling to me like a, a triumph of human ingenuity, it feels to me like a bit like a defeat. Mm -hmm. That it seems to me that the best place to be is in wonder, and the worst place to be is in knowledge and complete knowledge. Yeah. I mean, it seems like it's it feels a little dead to me. I, I could not agree more with that. I feel I do feel like on so many levels, and this I, I feel confronted with this on every almost at every moment of working on the show that like certainty is the enemy, mm -hmm. particularly premature certainty. It's always the enemy. It's the sense of, it's the point at which you stop asking questions. And uh, it's, it happens that, I mean, every time, I mean, like just on a most basic level on the craft level, when, when we're working on, when we're reporting stuff and there's a thing that happens when you're trying to put together a story where you're like, you're, you're doing interviews, you're trying to sort of put them all together. And there's a point at which you stop asking questions because you have to and then you start to build it and you'll hit this point where you're like oh the structure's not working something's wrong here why is this not working why do these pieces of tape just they don't like being next to each other and you realize oh it's because I actually haven't I needed to ask more like there's something underreported here there's something that I haven't explored there's some I just I, I shut down the curiosity too early like I, I am constantly confronted by that as an editor, that uh, that you have to you have to ask questions about sixty percent farther than you actually want to, in mm -hmm. some sense. So this is somewhat a follow up to that point about always questioning. The topics you cover on Radiolab are so expansive. The most recent episode was about professional wrestling. Mm -hmm. You also talk all these huge ideas about the nature of time and things. There's so many possible directions to go and questions to ask. How do you even start? What's your basic process? No, no, no. I mean, we start, we start in conversation a lot. I mean, we get together every Friday and, and uh, we, Robert and I, and then the whole team, which is now, I don't know, 12 people, 13 people. Uh, we everyone brings a thing that they're interested in and you sort of throw it in the middle of the room and you do your best to tell that story or that piece of a story or that idea is, and give it life and you watch everybody's eyes and if everybody's eyes get wider then then you're yeah. like okay maybe I got something yeah. and if everybody's eyes don't or if they start to ask you questions and you're like oh I didn't think of that I have to go back and report that more or whatever it is you just try and beat your colleagues you kind of win them over to your side and oftentimes it's a small story that begins a, a show you know um there's a like the wrestling was a story on its own you know but it felt like it's asking a question which is very much a question that's alive in the world right now which is about authenticity and realness and all that kind of stuff and you see that echoing in music and in novels and in reality tv it's all over the place so we're like, okay, maybe we could take this little story about wrestling, which got bigger, and give it friends, you know, so that the ideas in it bounce off something else and that you get a kind of conversation. But sometimes it's... um, And it got lots of friends. It got, yeah. We, we got, ran the Cervantes, but there's other ones too. Yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely. But sometimes you, you know, we're doing a show, I think it's going to be at some point about antibodies, you know, because just the idea, like the almost the metaphorics of antibodies. And that was that just began because I was listening to a song called Antibody, and I was like, "This is an awesome song." So that was very much just like a word that had energy that we're hoping will spawn little babies, baby stories. Uh, so sometimes you start with a story, sometimes you start with an idea, and you hopefully like try and meet in the middle. It's rough, 
like I, I'm still flabbergasted that two weeks ago I walked into a room with a story that I thought was a complete three-ring circus triumph of a tale involving a salesman in Dayton, Ohio, who plunges a loudspeaker into a vat of bubbling oil, and the gentleman sitting to my right didn't move a muscle. And I think, <laughs> what is wrong with the world that I can't make that's so obviously to me a killer tale into a killer tale? And the, the reason it ought to be rough is because th your mind is a little universe of its own, and it's necessary for you to take what's in your mind and try to push it into other people's minds. If it won't go there, the fault's on you. Mm -hmm. I mean, I have complete confidence that one day the story of germanium and <laughs> silicon will make it onto some thing I do. But there is a man sitting next to me who has no sense that that's about to happen. And I'm, I, I, will, I will raise heaven and earth in order to make it happen until I'm yes. convinced that it's wrong. He's not just being hyperbolic. <laughs> he, will, he will bring that story to me 150 times. <laughs> <laughs> it won't go away. Yeah. And I think that's, that's the way it should be. I think you, you need to... Um, and, and that's why this thing about curiosity is actually, to some degree, an act of bravery. It isn't really very sensible to be listening to a story called, some song called Antibodies and believe that just the song itself will trigger you know, the attention of lots of people. It takes a certain craziness. Um, and if you were to examine that craziness, you would, you would shrink back because you think, wait, what? Why did, what did I just do? This is not a shrinking violet kind of business. Curiously, it's a, it's, a, it's a rough and tumble. It sounds fun and engaging and everything, but underneath there's a real, there's yeah, a there's real, a lot of, there's a lot real of, wrestling. It's also like you have, I'm sure you guys go through this, uh, I, it's like you, for every idea that sticks, uh, there have been 15 that died. And so there's a lot of murder involved. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of like just ideas that did make it saying no to each other a lot um and so, yeah there's there's a, it's it's a kind of it's a kind of um joyful sometimes not joyful combat where you're trying to get these ideas into the world you're trying to get we have to, we we often have different ideas of where a story should go and we sort of hash it out you know the cervantes story was one where uh with that one we were just haggling over for, till the last minute i thought it turned out okay but mm -hmm. you know they, they they it's not always a uh a elegant process that gets it onto the air. But hopefully when it's on the air, it's dancing on its own steam and all the stuff that you went through. It yeah, I, I, I think it's important, I think, for people who listen to it to realize that, th that th this, the end product, which tries to be graceful and tries to be friendly and tries to be rich, is often in its generation very other things. And it takes a kind of tough person to sort of... Uh, to really these are crazy acts of commitment to things that are only half formed so it takes a slightly crazy person to you know mm -hmm. to get ferocious about something that they don't themselves completely understand on the other hand it's a form of athleticism i mean it's a rough playing field but it's sort of fun also you know mm -hmm. and it exists inside of a friendship so we can we have yeah. a little room to be you know yeah it's true crazy about each, you know about each other and also against each other but it's that's imp it's important that it be that way although i don't i think people who consume this product don't have really any ideas sometimes how how 
No, it's funny. Oh. I mean, we when we have people come in, like new producers or interns, I always see within a few days of the light in their eyes die because <laughs> they're like I had no idea it just sounds like it's just sort of it's emerging whole thing. and 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 then I didn't realize what it what you guys do <laughs> and uh yeah I mean it's like it's very easy we come over and spend five minutes with us we can kill the mystique <laughs> <laughs> So some more about just sort of the nuts and bolts, especially because we make a podcast, we're interested. This whole process that you've just been talking about, it, I don't know if there's any such thing as a typical episode, but how long does it take? Did, do these stories start years in advance, weeks, days? Um, all of the, all yeah. of the above. All of the above. More and more we're starting, you know, months and months ahead. Um, it's not uncommon that it, we'll be working on a story for six months to a year. I mean, it's not like full-time work because I, you know, we have a staff of uh, a bunch of producers, and everyone's working in two or three stories at once. Robert's uh, got twelve ideas that he's sort of like, you know, workshopping at any given time and making calls and sending out emails, and and you're just moving each one incrementally. And so, over the course of say six months, the stories are maturing, and then ten of those twelve will die on their own because they just weren't as interesting as you hoped. And uh, and the two that didn't, then when you finally decide to hit go, like we have it, it's on the schedule, here we go, full green light, then it's like two two or three weeks of just hard work to get all the remaining interviews, to put all the funny noises in and do the editing. So a lot gets done in those two weeks, but um, it's like you're preparing for those two weeks sometimes for a year. Um, and it's a very orchestral process. So in addition to it being we're trying to understand something, we're also paying a lot of attention to how what we're doing sounds. So there's a whole logic separate from the reporting called, you know, how do we do this? And we began being, we didn't want to sound like we were on script, which we're really kind of not. Mainly in the beginning, I think because Ira Glass's show is, is clearly red, and so we were trying to distinguish ourselves. I think in the, I, I can't remember this, but I think in the beginning we made a conscious effort to sound like to sound like a jazz improvisation, so that we wouldn't sound like Ira's show, so that we'd have that difference. And then it turned out that we were both suited for that, and that the duettiness when it's in play is a is a very interesting and deeply musical exercise. And Jad is, uh, more than anything else, uh, deeply inventing. And I think that where we're we're, if Radiolab is ever remembered for anything, it will be remembered for its profound musicality. And to some important degree, because, because this guy like, just came to it with an, an idea that how you play a word is almost like how you play an oboe. How you play a thought is like how you play a melody. And I don't think I ever ran into anybody who thought that way before. Um, and that makes it so much harder to do. <laughs> mm -hmm. Because there's no, it's like arranging flowers. Like there's nothing, there's no, you can't go to a book that says like, no. when discussing molecular biology, use, you know, three levels of sound and one narrative. There's no, there's no answer. It's like, it's like putting, you know, flowers in a pot. Like when do you, when is it beautiful? Yeah. That's the fun part of it. It's also the part that makes it hard for us to do sensible things like release more shows 
and be a weekly podcast, which everybody's life would be easier if we could figure out those questions. But we place such a demand on the on the compositional aspects of it, how how many layers we use. It's all kind of like on some basic business level, it's just idiotic. But uh, <laughs> it's just kind of it's become the sound that we all love, and so we all sort of now reinforce it for each other and. And when we have something simple that works, we're always like, let's complicate it. And we're like, no, we shouldn't complicate it. We're adults now. No, 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 let's add more stuff. And then suddenly, you know, it's four in the morning. And and then we're hating ourselves. It really is four in the morning. <laughs> but uh, it's, that's, you know, it's somehow somewhere along the way. Because, I mean, the thing that's funny to me now is, like, it really did begin as, like, a, I don't know, like a band. Like, so, like, the, like a kind of band that you, like, start in your garage. It had that feeling to it. Mm-hmm. I mean, first it was me, then it was Robert and me and this woman, Ellen Horn. And it was just the three of us just messing around. And we, there was no one who cared, no one who had any like expectation for what it could be. Podcasting was like not even a thought at that point. Um, there wasn't an iPod then. Yeah. And it was like we would make a show every so often and it wasn't often enough for anyone to notice. And uh, we hated the anonymity of it. We, we were like, why aren't people paying attention? But... Also, it was just like, it, just, it was kind of a great freedom. And so we stayed in that weird kind of benign neglect space for a long, long time. And then suddenly it, it's a thing. But it's a thing that grew up as a, as a crazy, like, prog rock meets, <laughs> meets <laughs> radio storytelling bizarre mashup. And so now we're in this place where we have to just make it all the time. And it's a... Uh, had we known that we'd be here, I think we would have made just really simple radio at the beginning just to make our lives easier, you know? Well, one of the things that I really love about Radiolab is, um, as Claire mentioned, all the different angles that you come at these different topics from mm-hmm. and how it ends up this kind of multifaceted um you know, gem uh, showing these different sides of these topics. Um, I guess I'm curious. I talk to a lot of writers and stuff for our podcast and as storytellers, um, how would you describe the shape of a Radiolab episode? It doesn't have kind of the typical arc of, you know, Mm. This American Life or some of the other podcasts out there. Well, I could, I I can actually draw it for you. Somebody, uh, just because I, I ran into a, I ran into a, uh, there was a guy from New Hampshire Public Radio who had, was drawing story structures on the back of napkins, and he drew our show. And it was really interesting to me, because um, it was the first time I had seen visualized what a sh- the shape of a story looks like. Um, but it was, uh, let's see how, it, maybe I'll try and describe it. Uh, I could draw it for you and then try and describe oh, here, it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here, I got a pen. So here's the picture. That's that the he, first time I've had a pen when I need it. Yeah. I know. You never have a pen. I know. So he drew it as like an, a funnel that begins small and then it expands outward and gets wider and wider and wider. But as it's expanding, it's passing through these sort of like, these sort of like phase transitions, these like hash marks. So it's like, it's like this, right? So basically what you're seeing is like a triangle on its side that starts at a point and then it expands toward its sort of wide end, but it's, it's moving through these like whoo, whoo, these sort of phase changes. And I, I connected with that. First I was baffled. I was like, what the hell does that mean? But then I was like, it is true that like we begin a show with a simple question that we know is too simple. 
but it's the question we have. And so we're like, we're searching for something. And so you go out and you just sort of flail around in this, in the initial, the first empty spot in the triangle. Then you hit this moment of phase change where somebody, usually Robert, says something smart. And we realize, oh, that question we had, that's not the right question. Here's a different question. This is the better question. Okay, let's ask this question. So that's this moment of insight. And then you're, fl you're flailing again. You're like asking questions, doing interviews, and the answers aren't quite giving you what you want, but they feel like they're leading you somewhere, but you, so, but you get stuck. And then someone again, often Robert, says something smart, and it's like, boom, another moment of insight. And then you have the new question, and then you go and flail around some more. And, and then that keeps happening, and eventually you somehow find a way to end the damn piece. Right, but that's uh, rather crucial, because we don't, we don't end the pieces, and so that solves the problem. We don't. What we end up doing is be saying, so wasn't that interesting, <laughs> with right. no solution at all? Exactly. Like very often there's, I mean, in the traditional journalism that I grew up in, like they wanted you to say, like particularly in the sciencey stuff, they wanted you to say, sunshine causes cancer. The sunshine, causing the cells of the water, so sunshine causes cancer. We've just heard the sunshine causes <laughs> cancer story. So it had a moral. I mean, the moral was often wrong, but it was at least, we don't, no, we, we don't have sunshine all we have is a sunshine does so many things <laughs> and one of them might be cancer or not <laughs> but wasn't that interesting so that's a really weird yeah uh but i i mean it's, it's like it's like it's, succeeded, it's, it's, it's like we built a story structure that is essentially the process of, of us being lost and then having moments of discovery that then thrusts us into ever wider yeah. spaces of it's being lost, lost but again. not found. It's yeah. a funny way to do this. So the structure, the form of the show, often mirrors the process of making it. You know, it's like we we are lost when we're reporting this stuff. We are often not. We don't know what we. This is what makes it hard to produce the show. Is that when you're lost, you actually don't know if you're going to get something, and you could stay stuck for six weeks to a month to three three months and the deadline is right there and you're like I, I, I don't know what to do but it's I can't get anything from these interviews but I still feel like the question is interesting but I can't somehow get found and so a lot of stories sort of flounder Actually, in that lost is okay lost is a place and it's not there is no requirement to um, to put a lid on it but that takes a lot, that takes yeah. time to understand. I mean, you know, Serial being such a big success, I think that was, uh, uh, I think, largely an exercise of being lost. You know, I mean, I don't know that she found what she hoped to find at the very end of that process. But with no, actually, that was a very close to what uh, she said. Well, <clears throat> wasn't that interesting? Yeah, no I mean, it's like yeah. I think, in, and I think it's interesting to me. Like I, 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 don't, I haven't listened to it enough to really speak intelligently about it. But like, there does seem to be this thing that's happening right now in podcasting, and I think maybe we were we are a part of that, which is that the stories that are engaging is where you feel like you use the word committed, where you feel somebody telling you the story and they are committed. It's not just like, I'm telling you a story because I'm a presenter. It's like, no, they got skin in the game. They, they freaking care. Uh, and you Germanium. <laughs> forever. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and that's compelling for some reason to hear somebody who is committed, who has got something at stake, and who's entertaining these like, amb ambiguities and complexities and often ending where they begin. You know, There's some way in which I think... The story, the storytelling forms and podcasting are embracing that, and it's kind of cool, because like, I feel like every story that we do and ends in a cloud, happily sometimes, ha not so happily the others, other times.
And it sounds like how you were talking about curiosity itself earlier, that you never stop asking questions. The more you learn, kind of the bigger your triangle gets, almost. Totally. Yeah, Yeah, I think on the day you do, that's a sort of sad day. Yeah. But there's, you know, it occurs to me... Usually it's described as being dead. Yes, it's true. (laughs) It does occur to me, though, there's there's a really deep difference between saying to Robert, so Robert, tell me how you got into this, versus Robert. How did you get into this? Like, there's some way in which, like, you, there's a, you can ask the question where it's just a question, or you can ask the question where you really fucking want to know the answer. Yeah. Like, it feels to me like those are entirely separate species of questions. And it's so compelling when someone really, really wants to know. Like, that's just a different, different beast. And I, I'll listen to almost anything where somebody really, really wants to know. That's why, I like, working with this guy, it's kind of amazing, because he, he is like a... A, a a cartoon uh, amplified version of curiosity. Like he just radiates. I spent yesterday morning actually worrying about two snails who are hermaphrodites having sex because each one was a boy and a girl. Each one had eggs to protect and each one had sperm. So each one thought in half of themselves, poker, poke him, poke it. Come on, get this, come on, let's have some fun. And the other person, I don't like this other guy. I mean, me, me has a cold. I have to protect my eggs. And it's the same being. And I was thinking, I was looking at the snail, I was thinking, what a hard thing it is to be a snail. <laughs> I would rather be in a body that's all male and talking to a lady who's all female. And to have them both in me and be courting someone else with two of them in them, whoa. And I don't know, <laughs> I was just sitting on the plane saying, I don't know what to do about these yeah, so whatever yeah. it is he's into at the moment, he just he gets so deeply into it that it's almost impossible to uh, to not. And there's no be into he knows it. that more than anyone in the world. Yeah, actually. and those those people are very rare. The people that somehow just through sheer enthusiasm and commitment to the question will just drag you along with them. Um, and uh, those I don't know. I can I can listen to anything that's got that that's got that yeah, weird pussy dust in, in it. Well, we have to wrap up here soon, but I wanted to sneak in one last question, if you don't mind. Um, one of my favorite questions to ask storytellers are about um, obsessions. Um, and I'm always really interested to hear um, a lot of the writers I talk to talk about these themes that seem to reoccur in their works uh, over and over again, um, intentionally or unintentionally. And you guys cover such a wide range of topics. What are what are those big questions or themes that you feel yourself coming back to and being excited by? Every time. I think that's a, that question really is called, who are you? <laughs> like, I've worked with a, a lot of different people. So with Scott Simon, for example, who I work with, he really, really always only wanted to know one thing. Are you a good person? Are you a bad person? And, and pretty much anything he talked about would eventually become a moral analysis. And Ted Koppel, who I work with over at ABC, he just wanted to know if you were lying. And if he felt that you were lying, he would kill you. And it didn't matter to him whether you were a beggar pretending to go needing money for a sandwich or you were a prime minister pretending not to invade someone. He would come at you with pretty much the same prosecutorial... And what was that in each case? It was because Scott, at some deep level, is profoundly interested in good and bad. And, and, uh, and Ted is profoundly interested in getting the sinner before he or she sins, or as or after. He just wants to catch you, if he can. 
So that is just because that's who they are. And I think that the question, therefore, to answer your question is like, it, it, the answer to the question is like, I am, for some reason, and, and sometimes <clears throat> I'm so interested in how to, and I've gotten into real trouble because I get so interested in how did that, how did you work that, how did that get, uh, with, I sometimes drop the moral issues. We were having, I decided mm -hmm. we, were, we were doing something which involved dropping a bomb on Hiroshima. And I was completely convinced that what that story needed was it needed to see the bombardier crawling across the bottom of the airplane and trying to you know, put the, activate the bomb, which had no button on it. You had to just take a piece of bomb and stick it in and it would lock and then it would be ready to explode and then it would explode at a certain point above the earth. And uh, he got like, ferocious to protect me but he said don't no you 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 simply lost notice you lost the fact that this story you're telling ends in a mass murder and if you lose the sense of mass murder then your interest in locking the bomb button or no is grotesque and that was an unfortunate way of answering your question, but he's right. I mean, I've had this all along. I, I get crazily interested in the, the this to this to this to this to this, and I sometimes lose a sense of the overall landscape, which is not a good thing, but it is a revealing thing. I, I then know that if it's snails, I'm just, I'm just very concerned about how I can simultaneously protect my eggs and still be, you know, uh, a barfly, you know, so, you know, a good, a good time, Charlie, in the same body. I, I just wonder, like, how that works. I don't know why I do that. Hmm. I, I don't, and I don't know what your, uh, what my, my your core, yeah. Well, I don't know. I, I don't know. Coming to your question, though, I, I don't know what my obsession is right now. I, I've been very interested in the ways that. I've been thinking a lot about the different people that live inside a person as they're trying to make something. Um, that the, uh, this is gonna, I'm not quite, I, it's, I, I'm at the beginning of thinking about this, so it's gonna come out slightly daffy, but um, I have noticed that at different points in the process, I am very, very different people. Uh, there are points in the process of making something where I'm this wild delusional optimist, and then there are points where I'm like wickedly neurotic. There are other points where I just want to protect something. There are other points where I want to destroy something. And I see that same kind of movement within Robert, too. And we're always sort of like almost when he's in destroyer mode, I'm in protect mode. And when I'm in neurotic mode, he's in open mode. And we sort of balance each other. I've become really, really interested in the the ways in which maybe the engine of, of making stuff is an oscillati oscillation between these different personality states. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, because I've I've been I've been really interested in it because a lot of the times it can be very hard, you know. It can be you get stuck and you you get down on yourself. And uh, I'm interested to know if there's a way to think about those feelings as just being part of the process, part of the fabric of these quilt of personalities that you have to be in order to do this. So I've been thinking a lot about that. Yeah. yeah. It seems you have to wear a lot of different hats in the creative process and um, creator, editor. Um, yeah. yeah. But underneath you are, sadly, one hat. Yeah. Somehow. You have to unify I think, yeah, And I think over the course of, say, 40 years or so, you learn 
what your hat is. You don't know at the beginning. Mostly you try on hats that you admire. No, I think I'll be so-and-so today, or I'll be this, I'll speak in the voice of thus and such. In the early NPR days, I mean, for a while, like everybody (coughs) was Neil Conan. All the women were Linda Wertheimer for a while. Then everybody switched to Cokie Roberts, and the boys all switched to, you know, someone else. I think in those days, people were, you know, it's a natural way to start is you, you, you inhabit something you like. And then gradually, it's like discovering your inner parent. Like at a certain point, when you get through like 35 or 36, 37, you start doing things that you hated when you were 21 that you yeah. would never do. And you think, oh my God, there's my mother. Mm-hmm. And by the time you're 55, you think, oh, I am a little bit of my mother. You, you're used to it. Yeah. I think this question you ask is more or less the same thing. It's called discovering sort of in slow-mo what was maybe lying there all the time. And then you then and then once you know it, then you just play with it endlessly. Well, I think we've probably run out of time, unfortunately. We were very, very excited to talk with you. So thanks so much for coming in and sharing your thoughts. Yeah. Thanks for having us.